Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Kia ora, folks. Welcome back to Seeds, a podcast where we talk about purpose. But neither of us are Stephen Moe today. Uh, my name is Peter Wells. Uh, I have appeared in previous podcasts um, where uh, we ended up talking about uh, sustainable food, food forests, uh, a bit about dance. Uh, I work here in Christchurch for the Food Resilience Network and on the Otakura Orchard Project. Um, my background is in dance and food forestry, uh, but today um, we're going to be talking about some other bigger stuff. Uh, and today I'm joined by... Sarah Kessens. I'm a research fellow at the University of Canterbury, uh, working on projects related to biochemistry and synthetic biology. So, Sarah, we've both done uh, an interview for this podcast before. Um, yes. We've both we've both done shows, and we've met outside of this, um, and just sort of been on the precipice of a much bigger conversation uh, as we're both working on food and uh, bioethics and kind of dancing around this question, how on earth do we feel, do we feed the world in the coming future? Exactly. And we're, we're both working on the, sort of the same problems, but from different angles and different perspectives. And so after we both did our podcasts and, and listened to each other's podcasts, we realized we have a lot of the same goals. We just have different ways of, of reaching those goals. And so it was really great that Stephen put us in touch and, uh, and we sort of met for coffee and uh, realized we had a whole lot more in common than we had, um, you know, sort of traditionally thinking coming from these two different perspectives, um, sort of against each other. And it was really neat to be able to, to meet and talk about how, you know, we're each individually and trying to collectively um, sort of solve the, the world's food problems. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's, it's really interesting to me that, like, I come from... Uh, my background's really grounded in permaculture design, which is really sort of grassroots, ecosystems-based uh, kind of toolkit of indigenous forest management uh, and organic agriculture, uh, and uh, lots of lots of sort of uh, ethics um, rolled into it. And so it's uh, it's really interesting for me over the last few years um, in dealing with food forestry uh, and. Um, bits of public health and food security, uh, looking at the wider picture that really um, around the globe, we've got a colossal amount of challenges. And over the over the sort of 12 to 14,000 years we've been uh, practicing <laughs> agriculture, since our since communities and civilizations started settling down, we've tried a whole bunch of different stuff um, to make this work. And so really it's, it's interesting to um, for me, looking at kind of how do we, if we're approaching uh, 2050, where we've got roughly 9 billion people, we've got to feed on this planet. But we've also, in doing so, um, thus far we've degraded a colossal amount of land around the planet. Um, and about half of, uh, sorry, a third of our overall land area in the planet is in desert, uh, which is extremely difficult conditions to work with. Um, but we've, all, we've also got, give or take, two billion people who are um, who are overweight or obese, uh, and two billion who are uh, undernourished around the planet. So we've got a whole host of problems. We we really do, and it's yeah. going to take a multifaceted approach to really look at all of those different problems. Um, so what's, I think it's really cool to bring people together. Again, you're coming from more of the permaculture, um, organic. Uh, background, whereas I come from, you know, a farming community in the Midwest United States, where um, it's what we would call conventional agriculture, um, which is is highly dependent on sort of industrial ag, which, you know, gets a bad rep. But that's how we have been feeding, you know, the world for uh, at least in the industrialized countries for, uh, for the last couple decades now. And so it's interesting being able to come from our different backgrounds um, and to, to sort of collectively work together to... Uh, to find new solutions and, and uh, new ways about to go about actually feeding people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, what I find is always interesting is that uh, um, everyone in this conversation uh, sort of stands up on on the soapbox and says, 
uh, only my way of doing this can feed the world. Yeah. And that's the only way that we are going <laughs> to feed the world is by doing this like one small set of things. Um, but I think it's interesting that in this whole debate internationally, um, less and less so these days, but uh, organics um, and non-chemical agriculture uh, often gets discounted really heavily. Um, and understandably that it's a rel it's, these days it's a small percentage of overall food in the world uh, is grown um, properly organically. That before, before the um, 1940s and 50s, really that was the only way that food was grown globally. But um, but in recent years that uh, we've had we've had serious waves of uh, you know chemical intensive agriculture, uh, even though we know that uh, in terms of just production capability um, that you can do really high and consistent yields really resiliently uh, in an organic setting. Uh, yeah, so it's interesting because um, we talk about sort of chemicals in farming. And uh, chemicals are involved in farming, whether that's organic farming or what we say, you know, sort of conventional farming. Um, we, we are big bags of chemicals. Uh, so it's really, you know, it's, it's what our definitions are and what are we willing to work with and what is actually sustainable. And, and those things change when we have more information and we have more technology. Um, you know, whether the regulations as set for organic farming currently are those are actually the most sustainable ways of going about things and that's uh, that's debatable what's what's really important i think is is having the tools and having the education to understand what is actually sustainable and what is going to work on the global scale for feeding 9 billion people yeah so just to just to completely launch into it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. If you've got Let's the do it. whole world map, we're, we're actually yeah. looking at a map of the world right now. Um, how would you do it? It's going to take, like I said before, a multifaceted approach. It's not going to be any one tool that's going to be able to, to be this magic bullet. Um, and that's going to take a lot of people having these conversations and understanding which tools are available for the different, um, you know, for the different countries, for the different um, sort of, of plots of land uh, that are being farmed. Um, so it's, you know, if there's no one magic bullet, one solution fits all for feeding 9 billion people. It's going to take all of us working together to figure that out. And so that's going to be, you know, that's going to be people's gardens. That's going to be community gardens. It's going to be, um, you know, permaculture inside cities. And it's the more people that are understanding um, how their food is grown, the more people that are, are actually, you know, getting their hands dirty and growing their own food and understanding um, exactly what they're doing. Uh, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's better for everybody. Um, but in saying that, we're not going to feed 9 billion people with backyard gardens. Oh, goodness. Right? No. Um, it's a great, you know, it's a great thing to do. And I think it's very important that more people are involved. Um, but it is going to take, you know, a bit of technology to, to actually get us to feeding 9 billion people. Um, we've got a lot of challenges out there right now with climate change. Obviously, areas that used to be suited for growing some things are no longer suited for growing those things. Um, you know, we have salinity, we have drought, um, we have all sorts of challenges that are going to take technological tools, and in particular, um, genetic engineering is one of those tools that we can use. Mm. Um, is, is genetic engineering the magic bullet that's going to save everybody? Absolutely not, but it's a tool that I think we really need to use. And if we're going to use it, especially here in New Zealand, we really need to understand more as a, as a community, as a global community, understand what that tool is. And again, we're, we're probably going to get into ethics of that here mm -hmm. in a little bit. Um, but I think the more people understand, um, just everyday people in the community, not, you know, mm -hmm. not industry, not people up in you know, research labor laboratories, um, but if more people understand what tools are available and how we, they can be used, um, I think I think we're all going to be better off for it. Yeah, I, I think it's it's worth taking some time, Sarah, and sort of breaking down like over the last um, few millennia, we've had a <laughs> lot of different uh, techniques and tools for growing food, especially with agriculture. So um, could you give me some context just quickly on sort of the distinctions we've got between, say, uh, heritage seed crops and that kind of uh, selection over time uh, versus hybrids that were really the, the hallmark of the Green Revolution, um, and then genetic modification and gene editing. Absolutely. 
So it's, I think it's really important to understand that we've been genetically modifying our food crops for the last you know, 10,000 years. Um, when we first started you know, selecting and saving seed, you know, there's, a, there's a grass in Israel that we, we kind of like to eat. Um, you know, this one has particularly bigger kernels on it, so we'll, we'll, you know, we'll start saving the seed and replanting it. Um, that is genetic selection. Mm. Um, obviously, it wasn't known at the time. Um, but, but as you save seed, you know, you're, you're basically selecting for certain genetics um, mm. just by virtue of you know, plants having genetics. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, as, as we got further along um, and sort of started understanding genetics, we realized that you know, if you had two parent crops that had two you know, fairly good uh, traits in them, you could crossbreed them and mm. get, um, get progeny that have you know, maybe some of those progeny will have both of those those traits. So say you have one with, you know, really, really tall, vigorous plant, and one has really good seeds. If you crossbred them and cross-pollinated them, you could get some progeny, some um, of the resulting crosses that, that had both, you know, really tall, vigorous plants with really big seeds. Hmm. Um, so that was sort of, you know, where once we started understanding that genetics were, you know, they're heritable traits, um, that led into all sorts of really fun things. Um, and again, into, you know, up, up to, to hybrid breeding, where you're taking, again, you're taking two parents um, and selectively breeding them in uh, and getting progeny that are, you know, have this, this hybrid vigor. And, and again, like you said, um, were really important in the Green, green Revolution. Mm-hmm. But basically at that point, we're, we're crossing two, um, two parents that are, are highly similar that just have different you know, genetic traits. What we can do now is we can understand the actual genes that are involved in those traits. And so if, you know, if there is a gene for you know, salt tolerance, we can actually selectively take that gene from one, uh, from one source. So say it's a, a corn variety that, that has salt tolerance, take that specific gene, put it into a different corn variety in a very specific way, um, and have that new uh, new uh, breed, that new cultivar of corn, mm-hmm. have that gene very selectively. Um, so with, with sort of the, the early genetic engineering techniques, um, sort of biolistic, so gene mm-hmm. gun, basically shooting shooting gold particles uh, that have genes on them into uh, into to corn cells, basically, well, into to any plant cell, mm-hmm. um, and, and getting the genes in that way. Um, or, or using agrobacterium. There's lots of different ways to genetically engineer plants. Mm. Um, but basically, it, it was getting genes, you know, specific genes that we've, you know, we understand what those genes are, getting those into, uh, into the cells of plants. Um, and that was more specific than uh, selective breeding and hybrid breeding, um, where in that we are only changing one gene. Um, but some of those techniques, you can't actually pinpoint exactly where that gene is going into the genome. Gotcha. What we can do now with gene editing and genome editing is take those specific genes and put them in a very specific place in the genome so we understand a little bit better how those genes are being expressed. Um, so the, the better our tools are getting, the more specific we're, we're getting with the actual engineering, uh, and the better we can understand what, those, you know, what the process of genetic engineering is actually going to give us. Gotcha. Yeah. So my, my curiosity in that and sort of in like applying that technology and that, you know, it often gets accused of being very scattergun approach um, to it. But my curiosity is uh, what's the sort of level of certainty of getting those results just given the whole range of environmental soil factors of, you know, heritage of the seed stock, all the weather um, and just sort of the experience of that plant. How does that uh, essentially what what uh, measure of that um, of its uh, response or its growth is is really dedicated to that gene editing? Uh, so we're learning more all the time. Um, so again, we're we're getting a much better understanding of what individual genes are doing, and so a lot of the the basic fundamental research um, that we see in universities uh, and and here in New Zealand and CRIs are trying to understand what those genes do hmm. and how those genes interact you know, with the environment. So if you have, you know, say, you know, a wheat plant that has a specific gene in it, um, you know, if you have that wheat plant in different environments, researchers are looking at how you know, having those genes, having those different alleles is affected in different environments. 
So we're learning more all the time. Um, but I'm not saying we, we know everything. And as, as scientists, I think we are, are the biggest skeptics out there. And so um, we will fully admit that, that we're still learning. Yeah. Um, but we know more now than we ever have at uh, any other you know, point in time. Yeah. And so it's really interesting to, you know, the more evidence, the more uh, knowledge that we have, the, the better we're getting at predicting what different genes do yeah. in different environments. Yeah. That's when I get really worried in any of these conversations is when someone kind of stands up and they say, we know everything and yeah. we have the solution. Um, that's, that's when I start, I, I start kind of shutting down and say, oh no, this is just, this is going to be another one of those. We've got another, we've got another bottle of snake juice. Um, yeah. Well, I think that yeah. goes for, for anybody really. I mean, if, mm. if you've got an organic farmer saying I can feed 9 billion people and it's like, well, that's great that you yeah, think yeah, that. Yeah. And I, I, you know, applaud your efforts, but no. Yeah. <laughs> I, it, yeah. yeah. I, I, what I, yeah, that's the thing is like, I, like we were talking about earlier, a lot of, I hear the conversation a lot of, you know, well, what if, what if everyone got back into farming? You know, what if everyone was just working on their 10th of an acre backyard lot and just producing enough for just themselves and just their family? And then can, can we all do it that way? And like the, the heart, like even though like in the history of, you know, of the U.S., of, yeah. of our country, like we've had uh, in the in the middle of the of World War Two, we had the whole Victory Garden movement, yeah. Um, yeah. which was the same over here in New Zealand. And we and even at that time, we had about 40 percent of the nation's food were grown out of people's backyards. But even then, it's it's a incredibly hard to just produce the raw amount of food that we all need to to thrive. And the, you have to also understand, you know, back in the 40s, where were people living? Mm. Um, you think about the migration just of, of communities from rural areas to urban areas. And that's great having a backyard garden if you've got that quarter acre lot. But how about New York City? Mm. How about Tokyo? How about London? How about Paris? Where are those people going to grow their backyard gardens? Yeah. And it's, and it's also we've, we've experienced something of a crisis in the whole food sector that really, even 100 years ago, we had a huge percentage of our, uh, of our nation was, was farming. Yes. Now we're down to less than 1% yeah. of U.S. population. Um, which is just really, just in, in my mind, that's, it's just, it's really tragic um, because we both have a lot of family who come from rural communities and to see those areas, um, you know, sort of decline and dry Absolutely. up. Yeah, the, and, and you get, you know, people that, that are educated and, and do have different perspectives moving out of those communities and then you only have the people, you know, that, that once was a, a thriving family farm is now, you know, hmm. one, one, you know, small sort of immediate family and, and a couple other people working on the farm and, and everyone else is gone. Um, and it, it makes it really difficult to have a community um, when, when you don't, when all the community is moving <laughs> away, gone, yeah. myself included. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I really hear you on that. Um, and that's, and also I'd say one thing that, you know, that's in terms of just day to day, what we can all do to help grow our food and, you know, help feed the world, even if it's just a little fragment of our diet, um, every little piece helps. Absolutely. Um, but just personally, I'm, I'm not going to grow my own olive oil. <laughs> no. Um, it's not, it's not going to happen. And it's, it's really, especially, you know, for, for those living in, in climates where that's not applicable, um, if you're in, you know, the really, really humid tropics or the really, really frozen, arid uh, northern realms, it's it's a really hard go of it. Absolutely. Um, to get most of this stuff together. Yeah, and that's, I think that's where sort of community. We are a global community, mm. um, and none of us are going to be able to solve everything on our own. Um, and yeah. yeah, I what what really um it's it's good that you touch on that though, Sarah, because I I. One concept that's come up a lot recently in uh, in the global conversations about food sovereignty, mm-hmm. in sort of looking at the looking at the fact that a lot of our you know a lot of cities, a lot of our nations can't completely feed themselves, correct, um, or aren't doing it right now. And that um, to me, that really that really hits on something. That my feeling is often that in places like 
like New Zealand, where we've got this incredible, um, incredible land ethic and this just uh, really beautiful landscape that we're all benefiting from. Um, a lot of our production here is, is of course, dairy, yeah. um, but we're exporting 90% of that overseas. Uh, and only using 10% when so much of our land area could be viable for other essential crops that would ultimately cost us less um, than importing them from other parts of the globe. Yeah. And it's interesting because that's, you know, sort of how our economy is set up. Um, is that sustainable, both from an economical standpoint and from a sort of ecological standpoint? Uh, and those those are tough questions that we, we definitely have to ask. And I think it is very important to get value from our land, um, and you know we're we're currently economically getting value from the land. Whether that's sustainable over the next couple of generations or not is is up to, to question. Um, but I think it's really important to understand, you know, if if it's not going to be dairy, we still have to keep the economy going. If we're still wanting to provide food for both you know our, our domestic population and still have a significant export, what is that going to look like? Um, and those are the conversations that we do really need to start having. Mm. Um, you know, the, the world is changing, um, both, you know, for, for consumption of, of what people both domestically and internationally are consuming mm. um, and, and what they will be consuming in, in generations to come. So it's, it's important that we do have those conversations as to, you know, to understanding where we're going with, with our land use in the next, you know, next hundred years. Oh, seriously. That's one relationship that, that always gets me is when, uh, when people are saying that we, the ideal of this situation with food is that we have the cheapest food possible um, so that then we can essentially take all of our resources, our hard-earned, hard-earned hard-fought money and, and spend it on other things, or just mm. recreation. Um, but oftentimes what, that, what happens in that situation is you get cheaper food, yes, but your costs in healthcare go up. As the as the quality of your food disintegrates, then actually you're just ex, uh, you're just treating your health as an externality, and you ultimately um, you ultimately pay for it really hard. And and again, it's it's a very holistic thing. I mean, you think about you know what's going on in the U.S. right now with with exports and and mm-hmm. you know trade deals and things like that. Um, yes, I mean we might have very cheap food domestically. Mm-hmm. Um, at you know at the grocery store, but what is the actual cost of that? You know what subsidies are going into it? Um, what is the land use? What is you know what are the consequences of that cheap food um, for the land, for the farmers, for the community uh, in generations to come? It's not just that you can have you know a, a dozen eggs for fifty cents, which you could do. And what do you mean I can't have a dozen eggs for fifty cents? <laughs> but it, what what is the actual cost of that dozen eggs? Um, or that, you know, that two liter of milk, yeah. um, you know, like I said, for your, for your health, for the economy, um, and for, for the health and the economy of, mm-hmm. of generations to come. Yeah. I would really, um, really, rather than just uh, specific nutrient breakdowns on packaging for food, I would love to see something, some, some good detailing around just where it comes from, carb, like even just carbon miles. Um, mm-hmm. It's not it's not a perfect metric and none of these are that's the, that's what's partially frustrating about it um but to have to have some better information about the um the sort of the way the way that things were grown in um and and the whole sector right now is rife with greenwashing um that we've got a uh there's this big boom toward uh natural foods and usually natural <laughs> yeah. is the term that gets uh added when organic can't be met. Right. Um, There's a lot of natural poisons out there that are very good for you. Yeah, no, I, I'm totally with you on that. Um, again, especially coming from a, a scientific background, uh, it's really frustrating for people, or for, for me anyways, to, to watch people you know, only buy organic because they think it's healthier or they think it's better for the environment uh, without actually digging into what the specifics of that are. Um, and, it, and again, in some instances and in, in some, you know, in some areas, both geographically and, and, uh, and sort of with, with different land use, uh, organic might be the way to go. But that's not a blanket thing. And it's the same with, with natural foods. Um, you know, natural isn't necessarily good for you. Um, again, there's a lot of 
things in the natural world that, that aren't so nice. Um, and so by putting that, that blanket on it, and like you said, with the greenwashing, um, I don't think that's really beneficial for anyone. And I think, like you, like you said, the more education, we, the more that we understand, uh, the better it is going to be for everyone. So again, having community gardens, having people understand where food comes from in general, I think is really important. But then from, you know, the, the bigger scale, uh, you know, understanding where the food in the supermarket comes from um, and being able to make choices uh, based on that. Uh, not necessarily just, you know, organically grown or non-GMO or that, but again, from a, like a geographic standpoint, you know, where, where is the food coming from sort of a thing? Yeah. Do you think we need supermarkets? <laughs> um, I don't have a, an alternative. Do you? <laughs> I think uh, I'd, I'd like to see one um, that, like, like you're saying, a lot, of the, a lot of the challenge with this is the relationship and the proximity to food. Um, and for me, that, that's one thing that, that comes up more and more is that rather than having these really, really long and um, sort of protracted supply chains um, from the actual food itself to where it ends up on our table, um, that if, we, if we're able to cut more of those, more of those people in the middle out, um, then we actually, there's, there's a much better, the much better transparency uh, that comes with that uh, and knowing, knowing what's gone into the food and, and who it's supporting uh, and making sure that actually gets back to the people growing it. Because um, really that's, that's, where, um, that's where so much of the value gets robbed from, from this is uh, that the people who are really producing it and the ones who are really stewarding the land in all these cases um, actually just get a, get a pittance of the value of the food that we buy. And I completely understand where you're coming from. Um, but thinking about it sort of on an economic scale, um, again, you think about most of the food that we produce domestically doesn't get consumed domestically, right? We have mm. quite a big export market. Um, and again, whether that's right or wrong, good or bad, that's the way it is, right? Um, so for, you know, yes, for New Zealanders, yes, that would be great um, if we, we knew better where our food was coming from. Um, but how does that tie into, you know, what we're doing as an economy? So, you know, can we take the milk that we produce and still have that, you know, in a, in a global economic sort of supply chain? Can, can what you're proposing work on that level? So just on that one question that, that comes up a lot uh, in this sector around the world is, is food sovereignty yes. and the possibility of nations feeding themselves. Um, so as, you know, kind of just given that, uh, in the current, in the current, uh, agricultural model around the world, it revolves on a, essentially a handful of very large entities, um, moving very vast quantities of resources, uh, around the world and often at the detriment of their quality. Um, a lot of, a lot of places are asking more and more, can we, actually feed ourselves within our geographic boundaries and i'm really i'm really curious how do you think that's possible do you think we can do it i think it's theoretically possible um but i i think it's it's good to sort of frame the question is is that something we would want to do mm. um you know we we both import and export quite a bit of food here in new zealand um that's you know a big part of our economy is both food production um as well as food export and so I think it's interesting to sort of frame that question is in, yes, we want to produce enough food, um, but do we want to be insular in that basically we're only producing food for ourselves? Um, I think, you know, our economy as it's set up right now uh, would sort of fall flat on its face if we're not, you know, exporting food. Um, so it's, I think, a bigger question um, sort of, you know, can we sustain ourselves um, while still sustaining our economy. Mm. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I definitely hear that. Um, and my, my question there is sort of where, like, so that's sort of where our resource income comes from uh, most of the time, but where do those resources actually go? You know, do they go into funding healthcare that's, um, that's, actu that's just making up for the fact that we're not eating well in our communities or 
um, do they go into a handful of Kiwis, um, but maybe not a widespread of the country? Um, and sort of where, where does that value derived from the international food system actually get to? Absolutely. I think that's a great, you know, a great question. It's a conversation I think we should be having more and more. Um, and that, you know, delves into a lot of different things with, you know, with power and um, sort of the, the structure of, of our communities and the structure of our, our political systems. And I mean, that, that gets into whole philosophical arguments, which is, mm. which is really fun. I don't know that we'd have time for that. <laughs> um, but I guess it's, it's an interesting thing to note is that, you know, we do have these collective resources as a nation. Mm. Um, and how can we better, you know, distribute those resources to, to everyone that, you know, that should have access to them? Mm-hmm. Um, how can we basically take, you know, the, the power and the wealth out of, you know, the hands of a very few and distribute it to more people. And I think, you know, as technology, um, you know, evolves and as it, you know, as it gets better and better, mm. um, there are more opportunities for, to diversify, um, mm. you know, in all aspects of our economy. Um, but I think a big one will be, you know, in food production. And so the more smaller players we get, uh, mm. I think, you know, we can start distribute to distribute that that power and that wealth um, to, to more players. So, I mean, whether that's, you know, your your local farm that's, you know, making really amazing olive oil or whether that's, um, you know, an agronomist that's creating a better variety of ryegrass. Um, you know, it's, it's, again, it's everything is interconnected, but I think the more that we diversify, the more we can actually spread the wealth of our collective resources around. Absolutely. I'm completely behind that because that's one thing that comes up a lot when we're talking about food and technology is power and ownership. Um, and so that's a really, that's a really, really interesting question that we've got to solve is if we're going to jump into these uh, higher realms of technology in our food production, we have to address like the really immediate problems with them around uh, who owns it. Like who owns those plants? Who owns that um, that seed stock, or you know the the rights attached to that? Um, where does it come from? Absolutely, and those are, are questions that I think a lot of us are asking. Both those of us, you know, sort of in the science, um, and then those of us that are interested in in politics and and the policies surrounding, um, you know, what where we go with the science that we create, um, and that. You know that has to do with with you know the, our values as a as a country as a community, um, and hopefully, as the technology evolves, we've got more people in these conversations that can, you know, make sure. <laughs> yeah, hopefully that that makes sure it's it's you know distributed a bit more you know equally. Yeah. So I'm I'm really curious, just sort of in the landscape of of your work and um, like food technology and and especially in gene editing. So there's you know, we most of us would be familiar with the sort of the handful of players that are out there on the, the front line of this, um, and that draws most of the gravity in the conversation. But out there in the great spectrum of things, uh, who is it? Who's who's working on all this? Like how many, how, like how many um, organizations or people would you say around the world actually like have access to this technology and are working on it? Lots. Uh, I mean, I'm numbers. I <laughs> could tell you, yeah. um, but I think of you know just those of us up in the labs, you know, coming up with ideas that that might seem completely crazy, um, you know, sort of at the outset. But, but you try things and you give things a go, and you realize that actually there's a lot of potential with you know with the new tools that we have. Um, so there's a lot of people out there working on it, and it's not necessarily the industry partners. It's you know I, I come from a you know, a vaccine um, PhD. Mm. And uh, you think about, you know, once you get sort of a vaccine candidate up and running and you've got, you know, small labs with, let's say, a million dollars, which sounds like a lot. Mm. But in the the great scheme of things, you can't bring, you know, a vaccine to market with a million dollars. It's just Mm. not possible. Um, So there's lots of small players Mm -hmm. working on these types of things. Um, But in order to actually bring something to market, oftentimes you have to partner with, you know, a commercial entity. so I think, you know, as again, I keep saying this, but as the technology, um, you know, gets better and better, you can actually do more things from a small scale lab. Mm. Um, and so it's, you know, there, you see the sort of increase in, uh, in sort of DIY biology. So, I mean, mm. 
if, if we can do, you know, sort of uh, DNA sequencing on the International Space Station, you can do it in your backyard if you really wanted to. Um, so again, these tools are becoming more available to, to more people. Um, and as they become available to more people that, that might have these crazy ideas, um, you know, more people will be actually able to, to do things and eventually, hopefully, um, you know, if, if we drive costs down, um, be able to take things uh, to commercialization. Mm. Um, but yeah, to answer your, your original question, there's, there's lots of us out there working um, on projects that, you know, that can increase our food, food security and can you know, create a lot of benefit for, for the global community. Yeah. Um, but oftentimes it's, it's resources, uh, that are, that are yeah. limiting. And so the oftentimes, you know, are sort of not forced, but, but if you want to get yeah. things to, you know, to commercialization that you often have to partner with, uh, with people with money. Yeah. I mean, being in, uh, in the grant sector, I completely empathize with that. Um, but it's, that was one thing that I, um, I heard recently, um, from Ann Tutwiler, who was with Biodiversity International, she was saying that um, about uh, 50% of all of the ag research uh, resourcing that's available is pretty much uh, devoted to those big three crops, to um, to, uh, maize, rice, and wheat. So that's, which is, to me, that's just, it seems like, uh, it, 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 it makes you hurt because of all the really urgent questions that need to be answered. A lot of the, um, the global market is just, you know, just floating around with these, um, you know, with this tiny handful of, uh, of materials that, yeah. that may be very profitable but aren't actually solving the problems. Absolutely. And that's a, a tough question. And again, I think it goes back to economics and power and how do we get those distributed more um, to the smaller players, to the, the sort of orphan crops. Um, I think there was a, a paper that was just published in, in Nature Plants here um, talking about uh, um, that, it's tomatillo. Um, oh, tomatillo. Yeah, yeah. Um, basically being, a, or ground cherries, um, basically mm-hmm. being able to take ground cherries and, and genetically engineer them to, to be bigger and you know, tastier and, and, you know, more amazing. Um, but that you, you think about those sort of things and that's not something that big ag is looking at. You know, that's not something that, that Dow is going to be super interested in, but it's something that could be really beneficial. Um, and again, there's lots of those projects going on all over the world. Um, but you're not going to hear about them because the, the money isn't behind them. Um, so I think one of the big challenges that we have is, is how do we get more of those, you know, those, those projects that have a lot of, um, you know, have a lot of potential and how do we get more resources to them? Yeah. And, and so what would be like, just curious in terms of just time, just in terms of resource input into these things, cause we're all, we're all a bit strapped for resources just that we're working on, you know, important, but not headline things. Like what's the particular difference between, uh, working with that ground cherry to, to breed it successively, to, to be more resilient in the environment, be bigger and have those characteristics versus just um, editing it or, or taking those uh, lab, lab shortcuts. So what's the question? Uh, yeah, what's the, what, what would be the difference between uh, achieving the same result for that ground cherry, yeah. uh, assuming that's even possible, yeah. um, through just breeding it versus, uh, versus editing it genetically? Uh, I mean, it's a, a big difference in, in time and resources. Um, so if you were to, to take that ground cherry and, you know, and try to, to have a selective breeding program, um, and you're, you're going to be breeding it over many, many generations. Hmm. Um, and that's assuming that you have, you know, sort of something to work from that has, you know, the traits that you're looking for. Um, whereas with, with gene editing, if you understand the genes controlling you know, flavor and size and resilience and those sort of things. Um, you can edit them quite quickly. Hmm. Uh, so it's a time thing. And then you also think about resources. If you, if you can do it quickly within basically one generation, uh, you think about the resources for, you know, for lab space, for people, um, for, you know, for trials to getting things growing. Um, you're basically shortening the time it takes to produce something and then obviously the, the resource load to produce it. Um, so again, being able to use those genetic engineering tools um, gets us the result that we're looking for much, much faster 
and uh, much more precisely. Mm. Gotcha. And and just sort of what what I, I hear a little voice in the back of my head that's saying, <laughs> um, essentially, would that transformation uh, just miss all of the uh, all the environmental factors along the way? You know, like sort of like that. It's you know, you could say that for, for plants, uh, often it's not like you know the journey is woven into the destination so much. Um, if we look at how plants have how we've been breeding plants for the last, you know, tens of thousands of years, um, that, you know, do do you think there's like, that those plants would miss um, adaptations to shifting climate or to uh, predator resistance, those things along the way? Um, Well, it's interesting because you think about sort of the the genetic home of a lot of the crops around the world, um, Mm. where they have evolved over, you know, millions of years. Um, before we started breeding them, you know, 10,000 years ago. Uh, We have adapted things to our needs um, more than the plants have adapted to, you know, whatever environment they find themselves in. So again, if we think about the majority of crops that are planted commercially for, you know, sort of high, you know, caloric value, right? Mm. Um, So we're thinking about, you know, sort of the the big ones out there. So the the maize and um, and the wheat and rice and things like that. Um, you know, is, is rice, you know, the rice that we're, we're breeding right now is, has that evolved or have we actually bred it? Um, you know, it's, yes, it has inherently in it, um, you know, traits that, that will help for, you know, for certain environments. But if you bring rice out of Asia and you're growing it in New Zealand, it's a completely different environment anyway. So it's, I understand where you're coming from with the question. And I, I think those are things that as we, you know, as we are creating, um, you know, new cultivars with genetic engineering, that's something that we definitely want to take into account. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we should be taking that into account, and we obviously do take that into account wherever we're growing a new cultivar in a new environment. Yeah, because I think the I think where people's concerns often jump to right away is the sort of the wider environmental impact that if you know something gets out of hand, then the repercussions could be disastrous. So right now in New Zealand, uh, as far as I understand, the the laws around uh, genetics are mostly sort of curtailed to lab setting. Correct. Um, so I know people people in the past have tried to um, <laughs> breed and test and test uh, genetically altered organisms uh, in field trials and in other wider <laughs> settings, and um, and uh, met with a lot of resistance there. Um, so that. Uh, so that's interesting that that's kind of wo- it's very woven deeply ingrained into the the national kind of cultural narrative here is that you know that this um, this apprehension around um, around modified organisms. Um, so do you do you think that's going to change in the coming years? Uh, I think we're going to have to have a lot of conversations around how it can benefit New Zealand. Um, because that's the thing, people aren't going to, to change their mind unless it has something that can benefit them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think as scientists and as people working on these projects, it's sort of our responsibility to have these conversations and to, to communicate with, you know, with the greater community um, how these things can actually help you know, everyday New Zealanders. It's, again, it's not just some industrial, you know, agriculture or, or uh, you know, somebody sitting up in their laboratory thinking up these crazy things that are just going to make them lots of money. Uh, you know, the policy is not going to change if it's not going to actually help people. Um, but I'm a firm believer in that these tools really can, you know, help everyday New Zealanders, both, you know, with, with our economy, um, with a lot of the challenges that we have around food production, with a lot of the challenges that we have with, with climate change. Um, there's a lot of problems that we can help solve. Um, using genetic engineering tools and using, um, you know, plants and animals and, and microorganisms that have been genetically altered. Mm. But I, you know, we, we have to convince the public of that before there is going to be any change. And I, so I think the more conversations we have around the things that will actually benefit New Zealand using genetic engineering, um, you know, the more conversations we can have, uh, the better it's going to be yeah. for everybody. Yeah, and I, I hear you on that. Um, but also my thought my thought when we say this, when sort of it's, we, we roll out this, you know, um, it's a collection of different organisms, uh, is what's wrong with the existing ones that like, for instance, we've got, 
um, even in New Zealand, we've got some amazing heritage seed stocks um, that have been adapting over the previous uh, hundreds and thousands of years uh, for their conditions here that come with all those benefits of, um, of resilience, uh, of that sort of, um, uh, that specific purpose, all the, the, all the, um, all the sort of nutrient compositions uh, that are often more complex than, um, than other seed stocks. Um, so what's, what's wrong with those? You know, uh, there's absolutely nothing wrong with them. But again, we've got a lot of challenges out there. Hmm. Uh, again, with agricultural, with you know, with feeding the world, um, with thing, with you know, changing environments, um, and and if we basically throw out the tool of genetic engineering, we're not going to be able to keep up with the way things are changing, and we're not going to be able to compete on a global market because everyone else is going to be using uh, these techniques and and using these different cultivars. Um, so I think we miss out on a big, you know, a big way that we can, we can create new, uh, new solutions. Gotcha. And I, I, I'm also hearing this sort of, uh, uh, what's happened with apples in New Zealand in previous, uh, eras was that, um, uh, some decades ago, New Zealand actually got, uh, um, really hurt in the international market by, um, by some of its prized apple cultivars, um, uh, finding their way to China, um, and then that segment of the market just getting uh, trounced um, yeah. because they were completely outcompeted, and that, and from losing that, dare I say it, IP yeah. um, in the food. Uh, so how, like, how would you foresee that? You know, given that genetics today is has so much sort of secrecy and, um, you know, and intellectual property and walls built around it, again, from largely from that, uh, from the major players mm -hmm. involved. Um, would, do you see any way that that transparency uh, can get better in terms of actually, um, you know, showing people your lab results and, 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 you know, sort of explaining what's gone into that? Or is that all something to be kept uh, under, under lock and key? No, absolutely. And again, I think the more sort of knowledge we put out to the general public, I think the, the better things are going to be. Um, obviously, you know, if you're spending millions of dollars on, on this research and on a, you know, a product that you want to, to commercialize, um, you know, it is difficult to just basically put it out into the world and let everybody have it. Um, but I think, you know, as we develop more resources around this, that will become more common. Um, and that basically you're, you're developing research for the common good and that, you know, basically everything will be completely out there. Um, so I think, I think it will get better. Um, but again, it, I completely empathize with, you know, with people that have developed things um, that want to actually recoup some of the, the costs that they've put into it. Um, but but I, think, I think it will get better, yeah. Yeah, and we and before we've we've talked about this many times in the past of like the sort of common good behind this and like the the ethics of of what this is, you know, and yeah. and like and you know this, you know, whether it's feeding ourselves or the world or all and like the land ethic behind it. And Absolutely. Like, yeah, because you you come from a bioethics background, you know all about. Yeah, this. well, and that's the thing, and I think it's really important that as a community we are talking about these things and and what is important to us and that what we're willing you know, willing to do if, if there are risks, what are the risks that we're willing to take to get, you know, an outcome um, and understanding, you know, just again, putting that knowledge out to the community and having the community sort of say that, is this mm. something that we want to do or, or is it something that, you know, there, there are risks that we're not willing to, to look at. Um, but actually using knowledge and using evidence-based um, sort of understanding to, to make these decisions and not having it a fear-based decision and not having it based on something that's, that's absolutely not rooted in truth. Yeah, I hear you. It may seem completely strange, but I can, I can see an instance where you have a town hall meeting in a community of 10,000 people around whether or not to plant a specific, um, you know, modified compound <laughs> and who's, who's doing it and how and why and, and what happened when, you know, what's, what's happened over the years when so-and-so has tried, you know, those, those different techniques and so on. And that would be, to me, if, if there were such a place for this technology in a scheme of feeding the world, 
it would be in a context like that where people can make their own decisions without fear of um of uh you know economic or legal um or you know commercial repercussions absolutely um but again i think it mm -hmm. the biggest thing that it comes back to is is you know based on evidence you know it, we have been using genetic engineering technology for the last couple decades mm -hmm. um and you know the overwhelming evidence is that it is safe um, and that you don't have you know, a lot of the, the sort of fear-based negative connotations, um, like th those aren't actually based in, in evidence. You know, a lot of the things that people talk about, um, you know, sort of frankenfoods and, and, you know, things that, you know, people are dying because they're eating genetically engineered foods, um, that mm. there's not actually any evidence for that. Um, so again, actually getting knowledge out there to the to the general population i think is really important so another another thing that i think is really worth talking about is um in in these topics is the quality of information and the and what and and how it's created and in what context because um, it can get like really quickly um a lot of these we're looking at the information and the and the real empirical knowledge we've got around these things um, the knowledge set becomes a, a bit of battlefield. Yes. Um, so yeah, like and that's, that's a big challenge that we have. Um, you know, sort of everybody's coming at problems from their own perspectives with their own biases. And uh, it's, it's a big challenge, you know, as a scientist, as somebody that's trying to, to do a good thing using genetic engineering, um, both to ensure that, you know, the science that I'm putting out there is is accurate um and then there's also a big challenge is you know basically getting that that information that that actual evidence out to the public in a way that they can understand um you know the the way that sort of science is incentivized is you know to try to get as much out there as you possibly can uh, you know if you're, if you're getting more publications you're getting more grant money you can get more students you can you know you can you can do more if you publish more basically um, so there's a big challenge to try, you know, to try to ensure that, that incentivizing more isn't actually creating, you know, a scientific, you know, information that, that isn't as high quality, mm -hmm. um, because that, that doesn't serve anybody, you know, if we're putting things out there that, that may or may not be based on sound, you know, scientific evidence, um, then that, that doesn't serve, you know our careers, but it really doesn't serve, um, you know, so the, the sort of the general public, because um, I think it's really important that, that scientists can be trusted. Um, mm. and, and if we're putting things out there that it, it is based on evidence and, uh, and, and, and again, that another challenge is, is actually making sure that that evidence that is out there, um, is able to be digested by by people so that they can make informed decisions. Mm -hmm. Completely. Uh, cause often what, Often, like where we get to in this space is um, for whenever people see something that's contrary to their belief um, on any side of the picture, um, yeah. they'll immediately uh, come to the table with the accusation that the research isn't unbiased and that people <laughs> have undeclared conflicts. And you know, and so sometimes there are conflicts in where the the resourcing is coming from. Yes, but it's really. Um, it's really hard if we can't have that quality conversation and it's just it's it's really harsh to watch persistently you know it that us you know everyone jumps off into that vitriolic space so easily and yeah. that's i think that's arguably more so today than it would be in um in other eras in in communication um but just it's it's so easy to uh, it's so easy to pick up uh, little pieces of this, um, and and to not have a a good conversation in the public space. Um, yeah, and I like I said, I mean, this is this is why we're having this conversation, is so that we can you know understand and and talk to the other the, the other side. I mean, again, we're all on the same side. We're yeah, all in this yeah. big global community. We all have the same goals. We just have different ways about of going about you know how to to solve these challenges. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, I think it's really important that that we don't dig ourselves in and sort of, you know, don't 
reach across the aisle and, and try to understand each other. Because um, the only way we're going to work out these challenges is by doing it together. And, yeah. Um, but yeah, historically, you know, it, it's two camps, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's sort yeah. of the, the yeah. organic hippies and the industrial genetic engineers, right? And mm-hmm. it's like, that's, that's sort of the, the cartoon version of it, but that's not the reality yeah, yeah. of it. Yeah. Um, but it, in order for it not to be the reality, we, we have to have these conversations more. Yeah, yeah. If we, if we took that same approach in sort of character and complexity to our ecosystems, we would all be aghast. Yeah, that's, that's really what we, what we keep coming back to uh, most of the time is that we've all, underneath all of this, underneath the methods um, that, we're, that we talk about of, you know, how do we get from point A to point B? How do yeah. we feed 9 billion people and restore degraded environments and make a, you know, beautiful, healthy place for everyone on the planet? Um, this, it comes back to uh, shared ethic. Yes. It's really, we've talked... We've talked a lot about um, land ethic and just the innate value of biodiversity um, and resilience for yes. all these strategies. Yeah. And so that's one thing that's that's really nice is that we can we can keep having this conversation about um, how we're going and how we get there, um, but without just we're just digging in and cover and covering our <laughs> no, ears. Nobody and nobody that, wins then yeah. again, and I want to learn more about what you're doing. And I hopefully, you know, as you learn more about what I'm doing, we, we can realize that there are, you know, definitely that we have that shared ethic, but that we can actually work together. Mm-hmm. You know, let's say if, if we can design a better, you know, tree for permaculture, um, you know, that, that you would be able to use in, in what you're trying to do. Um, or if, you know, we can look at, you know, the way that we're doing agriculture right now and, and use some of you know, what you're doing yeah, mm-hmm. to incorporate into, you know, sort of more conventional agriculture. Everybody wins. But the only way we're going to get there is if we're, if we're able to talk to each other. Yeah. And I, I'm sure you find this uh, a lot is that the, you know, the in systems change and in uh, and this sort of uh, transformation, like the hardest part is culture. Yes. You know, it's really the hardest piece of it is is people. And because, you know, Sure, the like ecological systems are are complex, but but people are um, have just this uh, extraordinary um, uh, depth and intricacy and contradiction to them, you know. And we're we're very messy creatures, really. <laughs> we are. Um, we are an ecosystem in and of ourselves. Eh? Yeah. <laughs> but we're also our biggest resource. Yeah. And I don't think we can you know discount that. It's like we have to understand that even if you know, you're in this, this different, you know, area, you are still a huge resource and you are, we are all still part of this, this whole community. Um, so if, if we use each other more, um, I think, yeah, everybody wins. Excellent. So we've talked about a lot of different things and a lot of, you know, different ways that, you know, we we're both working towards some of these, uh, you know, these challenges. Um, so coming back sort of full circle, to feeding nine billion people in the next couple of decades, where do you see us going? Hmm. I think for a start, um, we need to stop wasting forty percent of the world's food and throwing it out before uh, before it's all been you know consumed and and met with a uh, and met the people who who need it most. Um, but I think beyond that, uh, we need to be looking at um, really uh, ecological restoration in our food production, um, and this is. Uh, really entering the public eye with um, with uh, stuff like the Landscape Finance Lab at the WWF and um, and these other sort of similar ecosystem scale restoration projects um, that are working on you know agroforestry and bringing together whole heaps of different stakeholders um, but grounded in their local communities um, and that's to me where I would love to see this start going is that we we are that we you know, keep our shared land ethic um, and our and our sort of local focus, but that we are able to answer these bigger questions and not not necessarily um, worry about the about the um, sort of finite boxes that we put around them. Like, I don't think that regulation or just creating more rules is going to be the way we're going to solve these big problems. But it's going to be that that shared framework and that uh, shared that kind of shared um, outlook that's going to get us there. Um, so rather than, you know, rather than relying on um, 
on splitting hairs over, you know, on finite, uh, you know, finite technologies or policy or practices, you know, it's, there's going to be lots of different ways of getting to the same place. But so long as we're all sailing for that same direction and getting, and, you know, getting those results of, you know, regenerated, healthy um, places and, and resources along the way, uh, I think we'll all make it there. Yeah. yeah. But it's definitely going to take all of us working together, I think, is the, the biggest thing that we can sort of yeah. take away from at least this conversation and hopefully lots of more con- <clears throat> conversations to come. Oh, I hope there'll be more. Um, <laughs> this has been really fun. Yeah. Um, what about yourself? Two cents. Oh, yeah. No, I think I can I can echo that. Um, it's it's going to be a holistic approach. It's not going to be any one tool that's going to get us over the line. It's going to be using all the tools, all the resources that we have as wisely as we possibly can. And that's going to take, like you said, it's going to take input from all sorts of different shareholders. It's going to take, you know, scientists and economists and, and policy change and things um, all working together sort of to, to drive to the yeah, mm-hmm. to those yeah. those common goals. Yeah, yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be a, a hard road, I think. And we're and I'm sorry to say it's probably gonna be uh, we're probably gonna be in for a lot more um, a lot more surprises ecologically. But I think, yeah, hopefully we'll we'll all get there. And um, yeah, yeah, lot, lots of us working in in lots of different ways. Eh? Very true. Very true. Um, so yeah. Uh, Thanks for listening uh, with us, and hopefully we'll be back again sometime soon. And uh, make sure to, uh, if you haven't gotten the backstories on us and our absurd adventures, um, make sure to check out those podcasts. Um, So thank you very much, and we'll see you next time on Seeds.